You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Good morning and welcome to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. My name is Mat Khan. The time is two minutes past ten on today, Sunday, the 9th of July, 2023. You join us here live from our studios at uh, Betul Fatu. And uh, on Weekend World, we talk about the week's news. We go behind the headlines and we have some in-depth discussions about things that are happening around the world. And today I'm very lucky to be joined on the line by Dr. Abdul Alim. Dr. Alim, assalamualaikum and good morning. Assalamualaikum. I think it's not it's not quite morning where you are, perhaps, but uh, morning morning here um, in in the UK. And um, and Dr. Lim, we we the first thing I wanted to um, wanted to talk about was um, over the last week or so, we've been watching in 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 Haron with a with a huge amount of pain the situation in um, in the West Bank and. Uh, uh, on the third and fourth of of July, so just a few days ago now, and and painfully, ironically, the fourth of July, the day on which Americans uh, celebrate their independence and uh, a, a cause for great um, joy for Americans, America being the the biggest supporter of the of the Israeli government. Uh, on that day, the Israelis attacked the Jenin refugee camp, um, and ostensibly and 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 they said that the reason that they did this was to uh capture and and uh to eliminate um terrorists in the in the camp who had been uh attacking Israel um but the as part of this they um essentially sent in um thousands of of troops and they killed um we think at least 12 Palestinians one Israeli soldier was also killed, and uh, thousands of people were displaced from their homes. and And the Jenin refugee camp, for anyone who who doesn't know, was uh, established in 1953, following uh, uh, essentially the the removal of many thousands of Palestinians from from their villages. They were they were kicked out and and they were forced to then settle in the area outside of Jenin. It's not so so Jenin is a city. The uh, refugee camp is outside of Janin, and, and these people now for uh, two generations have been forced to live uh, in this uh, dire situation with very little in the way of infrastructure and and, uh, and essentially criminalized by the Israeli government. Um, and this was the, the worst Israeli assault on the West Bank in decades, and it sparked um, widespread protests and, and condemnation across across Palestine. It was it was condemned by by many countries and organisations, uh, understandably the Arab League, um, but also by Egypt, Australia, and, and Canada, and, and by Israeli human rights organisations and by Amnesty International, that a, that's a well respected and well known human rights organisation. Uh, and the situation for the for the people there in Jenin was pretty pretty dire. You know, they're forced out of their homes, and and they had to um, they had to then uh, also. Um, defend themselves as well against what was an attack on on them as individuals um and so so really really painful to watch uh, dr Lehman and, and his holiness Hazrat the worldwide head of the f and the muslim community um said that we should as as muslims we sh- we should be praying for the people of of palestine but also he pointed out that um what was required was unity amongst muslims in order to 
to be able to respond to the situation in the world there. And, and what the people of Israel really required was leadership that was uh, able to really answer their their needs and to, to be able to support them to to uh, in order to have uh, the the right future for the for the people of Palestine, um, but it it is you know, it it feels like I suppose to many who are watching this it feels like oh this is just another another bit of news from that part of the world where um, uh, Palestinian um, terrorists do something and then the Israelis respond um, and then the the same thing continues and it doesn't matter what we do. Um, the the whole situation is just going to go around in a big circle again and again and again, and there's no there's no end in sight to this. It seems to have been going on for years, um, but it is it, it's it's far from a static situation. It it is a situation that in many ways has been getting worse for the people of Palestine um, over the last many years, um, and and very painful to watch. And your your thoughts on this in the first instance, in terms of um, in terms of what is happening there, and in terms of the, um, in terms of what the Israeli government has has done, um, and and wh- whether or not there is any sense in which their actions are justified, or or whether we should look into it in 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 more detail as to as to why this situation has arisen. It is indeed um, uh, tragic and sad, uh, Dr. Ahmad, and we have talked about this um, a few times in the past also. Um, I remember uh, when we talked about it last time, uh, we talked about the case of Palestine that was presented to the UN General Assembly in 1948 when Israel actually came into being. Mm. And the famous speech by Sadafullah Khan, who was a very prominent member of Ahmadiyya movement in Islam, um, and the president of the International Court of Justice, uh, a very, very high-level uh, uh, jurist and a foreign minister of Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this famous prophetic words that I remember mentioned in the program last time was that uh, he said that with this um, occupation of Palestinian lands by the uh, Jewish settlers, under the banner of uh, Zionism, uh, would forever uh, put Palestine and its people on a cross, mm. um, and that this this the body of Palestine will hang from that cross for eternity until it dies or until uh, corrective action is taken to take it off the cross. Now, there are some words I've added, but I've added them to also characterize the current situation which uh, you mentioned mm. um, really um, saddens and agitates many of us in the sense that um, we see an open atrocity taking place we, we see somebody being taken up and put on the cross who's totally innocent and uh, it seems that nobody is willing to take that person off the cross um, and the world seems to be just a witness this horrible suffering that Palestinian people have been uh, been going through over the last 70, 75 years. And, and sometimes it does surprise me as to what led to this sort of what would we call persecution or punishment of the Palestinian people. Um, you know, in many cases, we see the problem of otherization. You know, otherization is 
characterized or sort of defined was defined by a neuroscientist Kathleen Taylor um, and she says that uh, otherization is what happens when people are not included in their tribe the others are commonly classed as beasts or subhumans mm. and this uh, definition can be broadened towards separating people belonging to different religions or separating believers non-believers friends or not friends is a very old uh, human tribal sensitivity and culture which talks about you know why somebody else is not acceptable or why somebody else is subhuman or even a beast and uh, we see the rise of this situation across the world and his holiness Mirza Masood Ahmed Khalifatul Masih and the Ahmadi movement last in his last sermon did mention several situations that would actually qualify for this process of otherization and let me mention some of these where we know that in Algeria uh, the Ahmadiyya community is suffering at the hands of the government. Um, in Pakistan, we have had again, three days back, a case of uh, desiccation of Ahmadiyya graves. Mm -hmm. In India, Muslims continue to suffer at the hand of Hindu extremists and the name of Hindutva, which is a nationalist Hindu movement. Um, you know, we have had this very tragic event in Sweden where uh, the Quran was burned and, you mm -hmm. know, they were... Um, there were events of violence across India because of that. And then you know what has happened in France after the death of the 17-year-old, um, you know, Fatouchi in, in, in Paris. Uh, and then one, one cannot really just go over what is happening to uh, Rohingya in, in um, Burma, mm. which is another case of otherization. But I think that... Um, all of these could be sort of labeled in one place, but uh, the Israeli and this incursion in Jenin and the other events that have taken place over the last 75 years after the occupation of Palestine are really very different because in this case, uh, this was really no otherization of a Palestinian group from within Palestine. It was really um, an international scheme to settle a people who were not Palestinians into Palestine from across the world because uh, the Germans um, had persecuted the Jewish people in Germany. Mm. Um, and this movement was born as a symbol of or as a refuge for Jewish people to go back to their homeland, which is perhaps mentioned in Torah as the secret homeland for the for Jewish people. Uh, but this is entirely a very, very strange situation where uh, a foreign population was moved en masse and is still moving en masse into a, into a different land and being settled as natives while the natives are being pushed out mm. uh, out of the land. Now, uh, a, a very, not a very close parallel, but you know that when Pakistan was formed, a lot of population movement take place where Hindus migrated from in Pakistan, current Pakistan to India, and from Muslims migrated from current India to Pakistan, and millions of people were killed. Mm. But in this case, it seems that uh, while there is a large part of Palestinian population which has been displaced and lives now as a diaspora across the world, there is still a Palestinian population that wants to live and call Israel their home, uh, and that uh, population is being persecuted for doing just that, that they want to live in their native land and want to stay in their homes. And the Zionists or the Israeli government, which is probably a representative of that movement, has been persecuting them for 
wanting to live in their own homeland and in their own homes. Um, and the Janine invasion or incursion, and certainly, uh, you know, in the Western media and Western press, it is always softened because it is really a persecution and a murderous attack on a native population of Palestinians in Jenin, living in camps, unbearable situation, um, suffering from a 75 years of occupation and still being killed. Now, the reason that is given in the, in the if you look at the news is that there was uh, some backlash from the from Palestinian militant groups towards the settlers who were harassing Palestinian populations because this is how the um, the occupation is expanded mm. by settlements where settlers are allowed to come in and harass the Palestinian population. Um, the homes are demolished and new settlements grow. And this has been going on for the last 75 years with uh, almost 100% from the original 100% territory that was Palestinian. Now 90% of this occupied by Israel and only 10% of that now is left to West Bank and Gaza and, and part of that, um, which West Bank is Janine. So this expansionary policy has been, uh, you know, irritating and agitating the original Palestinian population. But it, it does seem that um, this action in Janine was taken to take out some of the militant groups in Janine, uh, the Palestinian militant groups, who were now trying to stop the, the Israeli settlers from harassing the local population. And, of course, as you know, I think uh, seven people have been killed and several have been injured. And, of course, we still are counting the, the injured and the buildings that have been demolished. But this is, uh, this is an ongoing situation which uh, seems to not have any end. And uh, when you look at the Western press, uh, mainstream media would always talk a sort of a false equivalence between what is happening to uh, Israeli population who they feel are being harassed by um, by the Palestinian population, and then uh, Israel coming in and killing Palestinians as a response to that, and they call it call this as a conflict, and keep forgetting that the UN has actually called this illegal occupation, mm. and continues to call it illegal occupation um, in the face of what I believe has been an organized disinformation by the mainstream media across the world to put this as consistently as a conflict and use passive uh, sentences to say, well, 12 Palestinians were killed. That is a, a, a really a disinformation because 10, 7 or 12 Palestinians were not killed. They were murdered by Israeli occupation forces. Mm -hmm. That you never see in the Western press. And that is really the tragedy that we see today where events are painted in a way uh, where you cannot really figure out the right from wrong and not be able to condemn or say what one should say to be able to stand on the side of the uh, oppressed. And and I guess you know the the language here is important as you as you said and I think at the beginning I I said that twelve Palestinians were were killed as well. I was kind of reading from what what is what has been written in the in the press and as you as you say if we if we use the language of warfare then often the media will say things like so many people were killed on this side so many people were killed on on that side as if there is an inevitability in a war that people will die and we are just quoting the facts but as you said we're we're talking about um innocent individuals 
who are murdered, children as well, who are murdered. And the the idea that um, the the even if you find that a child is a is a member of an organisation who, from their side, they would say are uh, fighting for their freedom and defending uh, what what is now uh, their their uh, home in a refugee camp. Um, but from from your point of view, from the Israeli point of view, is um, these are terrorists. Even if you believe them to be terrorists, uh, to to murder a child in that situation surely is unacceptable, absolutely unacceptable. And this is not forgetting that um, we see every single day in the news that the that the um, Israeli state, the Israeli authorities, brutalize Palestinian children. They harass them. They arrest them. Um, as we as we've seen, they are. Um, murdered as well. They are uh, the the subject of a brutal occupation. Their uh, their very futures are robbed from them um, because of the actions of uh, the Israeli occupiers. Um, but it is it's rarely framed in that way. It is not framed in such a way that when you when you um, uh, systematically brutalize an entire population and create a situation where the 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 children and the future generations and the and the people who will ultimately um help to lead um a, a population of of individuals um through the next generation and provide the 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 right leadership when all you do is brutalize them and remove their their chances for development their rights to an education their rights to health care their rights to um uh, a a safe and and uh, prosperous life then this is a situation that you have created yourself that you can't simply say oh but they're acting in this way and therefore our actions are are justified um it it's it's a situation that as you as you say dr Lee, um, it's very difficult for people who are watching this from Many thousands of miles away, when they when they hear what is said by the media, and we and we um, saw a BBC presenter condemned for even questioning a former Israeli prime minister on this question, and suggesting, making the slightest suggestion, that um, it was not justified to kill a child um, in in Janine. Um and uh, and 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 that individual that that. Um, uh, BBC presenter was was condemned for having even suggested such a thing. So you can see how strongly the narrative pushes against um, the reality on on the ground. Unfortunately, indeed. Um, in fact, uh, since the beginning of the year, uh, the United Nations Commission on uh, um, on Human Rights uh, has counted at least thirty six children who have died and injured, and uh, you know. Uh, this uh, story continues, uh, but I think the I think the the real worry that I have about this is uh, is uh, the lack of response from usually the countries that hold themselves up to international human rights standards. Mm. Uh, we 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 do say that yes, um, many parts of the developing world, you know, uh, have come willy nilly to the international commission international human rights convention. Uh, we also know that the 
uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights is the most ratified uh, human rights law uh, globally, except one nation, uh, almost all the countries in the world have actually ratified it. So, yes, people do pay a lot of lip service to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but we know that uh, the Western democracies, and certainly North America and Canada, uh, hold themselves up to those standards because these were the countries that actually laid the foundations of the United Nations and were the first ones to uh, draft and ratify the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So uh, we would like to hold them to account on that basis. And unfortunately, when we look at the Palestinian situation, it is really these countries that uh, do not hold themselves to their own standards. Mm. And we have uh, we have a real right to be upset and angry about it. In fact, um, just yesterday, I think a couple of days back, um, I was uh, disappointed to hear that uh, the there is an anti um, BDS bill tabled in the UK Parliament, which is uh, likely to be ratified or passed. And this is to do with the um, boycott, divest, and the sanction movement against Israel, which was popularized uh, and began in 2005 by a lot of human rights organizations and activists. Um, and this is totally uh, peaceful and a movement that boycotts commercial products from Israel as a as a means to protest the apartheid that actually now prevails in Israel against the Palestinians. Mm. And it does seem to me that um, the UK parliament is perhaps poised to, despite protest, protests of some of the parliamentarians, it does seem that it might actually pass this on mm. uh, into, into a law. And that would mean that anyone who is found actually boycotting or sanctioning Israeli products would be labeled as akin to being a Nazi. Mm. Um, and that's that's really horrifying. I mean, in the sense that how, um, how uh, distorted can things be uh, in the sense that... Um, uh, in support of the occupation forces and the atrocities of Israel, when people actually try and do peaceful protest, uh, and you know that as an Ahmadiyya movement, as a follower of the movement, as the instructions of the movement are that you do not fight militancy with militancy, but you fight militancy with prayer and protest. Mm. Uh, it means that even a peaceful movement to protest and uh, beginning a commercial boycott of Israel's products is now being labeled as uh, akin to being an effort of the Nazis, which is the original origin of the Holocaust against the Jews. So, uh, you know, how how surprising this, this turn is that, uh, you know, you cannot really uh, now try to sift what is true from what is wrong because the discourse is so distorted and so turned upside down that it is difficult to even be um, against Zionism and not be la labeled as an anti-Semite or anti-Semitic. Uh, so, you know, these are very difficult. Uh, things have gotten so difficult that, you know, you can burn the Quran in the name of um, freedom of expression in Sweden. And, you know, if you protest against this, you, you could actually be arrested and, mm. and, uh, and put in jail for protesting against a hate crime. Um, which actually was a hate crime and, and is now being classified and perhaps people will go to court in Sweden against that person. But what I'm saying is that, uh, you know, this sort of distortion in very, very clear um, uh, 
persecution and offenses and oppressor and the difference between the oppressor and the oppressed is so dimmed and so blurred that it becomes difficult to even say these things on you know uh, on on radio shows on youtube where you feel being banned because you're trying to say something and sift the right from the wrong and raising consciousness about where the oppressor is and where the where the oppressed are and i mean some people will say I'm just just to take the counter view not really because i think it's i think it's important that we that we consider it from from every angle in this respect and some people will say well you know if you engage in this sort of behavior where you are let me frame it in this way you say i'm not going to buy israeli goods i am not going to i refuse to um purchase goods that are manufactured by an israeli company or services that are um given by an israeli company and people are going to say well you're just you're essentially israel is a jewish state you're essentially being racist against jews and that is and that is what you're doing because there's no other way of reading this israel is a jewish state if you are saying that i will not purchase anything that is manufactured in israel or services provided by an israeli company then you are then you are essentially saying that you don't like jews and therefore and that's the slippery slope and therefore you are the equivalent of the, the nazis because they also didn't like jews now it's it's a you can you can see how it's a stretch even in that respect but i guess the question the question is that um for those who would con- con- condemn it in that respect that there's clearly there's going to be a nuance in all of this and there may be a jewish comp- uh, an israeli company who um uh is providing services or manufacturing something that you may say actually you know when i look at the credentials of this company i see i see a company that that condemns the actions of their government who produce goods in an ethical way without suppressing the rights of palestinians uh and say okay well this is a company that i don't have a problem with but but for f- there may well also be companies in israel whose factories perhaps are on um occupied land who uh provide services um and but their um their offices are in are in are on occupied land <clears throat> or who who um uh through directly or indirectly are are part of a system of oppression for uh the of of the Palestinian people and uh, you just make a decision i cannot morally align myself with a company that does that and that's a matter of conscience and to equate a matter of conscience when we're talking about the oppression of an entire people with nazism is incredible it it it's just absolutely astonishing and yet as you say that the uk government is potentially on the on the verge of of making what is a a question of conscience illegal uh for individuals in in the uk um and whilst you might be able to to do it silently and, and just make a decision um in conversation with yourself that i'm not going to uh, purchase goods from or or uh, be involved in in um in any way in a company that that does these things um it becomes troublesome and it it also becomes troublesome because there are many many companies in the UK also who directly or indirectly invest in 
in the Israeli government and and in the um, and in companies who are involved in uh, directly or indirectly in the oppression of the Palestinian people. Um, and and again, these are questions of con- of conscience to to say, well, I'm not going to um, purchase goods from them. I'm not going to get services from them. Um, it 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 becomes uh, it it is not a uh, sadly, the the equivalence is not there uh, in a way in which it was when we were talking about apartheid in South Africa. And uh, having said that, though, there were many within the um, the mainstream in the in the UK who condemned those who condemned the South African government during the years of apartheid, and it was it was <clears throat> considered. In some quarters, it was considered fringe protest to protest against the South African um, government. Those individuals ultimately found themselves to be on the right side of history, um, and the rest uh, have have desperately attempted to whitewash their own um, point of view from those many years ago. Do you, do you, uh, Dr. Liam, how realistic do you think it is to to think that there will come a time when um, this narrative will be changed and will be reversed, and it will be recognised that um, what the Israeli authorities are doing to Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza is is nothing short of a form of genocide and the and the extermination of a of a people. Well, that's a difficult question to answer. I would say that um, I think that. Uh, uh, this has been going on for 75 years, and there has been. Uh, we have talked a lot about um, what could bring a change in this program for a while now. And you remember when we, uh, when COVID was was on its uh, in its prime and was affecting a lot of nations, and there was lockdowns. We thought this could be the message to humanity that um, we need to return to the concept of absolute justice, which the mm. head of the Amadia movement. Had narrated several times in his uh, sermons and seminars, uh, where you take the side of the right side of the history and right side of the argument, no matter what it costs. And even if it costs your relationships, um, your loved ones, you would need to stand on the side of the right. Um, and and unfortunately, um, you know, events come and go, and events such as COVID of global significance have come and gone, and we haven't seen any real change in uh, human behavior and no no real change in what we see is increasing polarization across human societies everywhere in the world. Um, and it seems more and more to me that, um, uh, that even societal problems, uh, not just in the Western part of the world, but even in most, most uh, nations of the world, are rising to a certain ex- to, to an extent where leaders are unable to even solve their uh, common domestic political problems. Um, even if they're populists, they tend to uh, give rise to very polarized uh, societies now. And um, and we are getting to a situation where we are unable to understand each other's views and even have tolerance to uh, or adherence to what we believe are human rights. So. In one sense, actually, if you go to a supermarket and you don't want to buy a product that is made in Israel or on the occupied lands, 
you are exercising the choice of freedom in buying a commercial good that is your your choice by constitution as a part of the social contract that that uh, the country that you live in and uh, and given that western nations have thrived on capitalism and and free choice and free market uh, it would be really very strange to pass that bill in the uk where you might be surveilled um, and told not to or to buy certain things in a supermarket uh, where your personal choice would be controlled by the government in terms of what you can or you cannot buy. Mm. Um, that, that would be ultimately um, very, very um, utilitarian and it would be really scary if that happens. And to me, uh, this bill in the UK seems to be going, going in the direction that as to ultimately how would you implement this bill? And it would have to be implemented in the sense only possibly if you were to um, start some sort of surveillance of people, whereby uh, you can they can you can tell whether they are buying certain products or not, mm. and unfortunately, some of the new movement on the central bank issued digital currencies points towards that uh, that once um, all currencies is digitized, um, in fact, the governments will be able to gather a database and be able to tell what are you really buying from a supermarket or you are not really buying from a supermarket. So these things are becoming a reality in this age of big data sharing and artificial intelligence. And I'm afraid that um, at this moment, um, every new change that we see or a new uh, global threat that we encounter uh, people like us would think, okay, now this is the time where humanity learns and goes back to, um, you know, adherence to absolute justice and, you know, uh, become, uh, you know, uh, return to uh, the the uh, the only God that uh, we all uh, pray to. Uh, but it seems that that uh, is not in the picture right now, uh, and uh, that really really scares me for. Uh, for oncoming further human suffering because of this negligence of basic human rights. And, um, I mean, as you said, we've we've spoken about this many times, and it seems that um, there continues to be huge challenges around around these questions of of just and and it's not it's not just in countries like the UK it's not just in countries like the USA we see it in many parts of the world but the idea that um justice should be a universal if if we look back in history then we can see that that nation states are a relatively new concept but um alliances of city states were the were the norm and within that there were um uh, for practical purposes, um, various city-states would come together and, and form a, essentially uh, de facto nations, um, and if if not if not countries, uh, and would defend themselves against against their enemies, uh, and would other those enemies. And this has been going on for many thousands of years. And one would hope that the um, that the march of human progress would be such that we would get to a point, as you said very eloquently, that I, I don't see um, 
an individual of another nation as being of another nation. I just see a brother or a sister. I just see someone who is as de- deserving of my help as my next door neighbor. Uh, and and that should be the principle that um, drives what we do, that idea of absolute justice, that idea that even for the leaders of a of a given country, that they should be thinking about the situation that others um, individuals in other countries find themselves in and should be acting in the best interests interests of the entirety of humanity. Um, but very sadly, we don't see that situation. We've <clears throat> spoken a lot about the situation in, in Israel and Palestine, but as you mentioned, we see that situation in India with rising Hindu nationalism and, and the oppression of the rights of, of Muslims. And then painfully and ironically across the border in Pakistan, we see um, Muslim... Uh, a Muslim authority and Muslim uh, in a Muslim majority country, uh, we see the oppression of, of the rights of minorities within that country, and whether they are uh, uh, Christians or or, or or Hindus or Sikhs, but but most potently for many in Pakistan, am the Muslims who are abused and who have their rights stolen from them, and 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 who are uh, murdered who have their graves desecrated and who are stopped from from their religious observance. And many around the world, many Muslims around the world were celebrating Eid. Just a few days ago, an Ahmadi Muslims in Pakistan were stopped from being able to to observe their Eid prayers or to be able to uh, do the normal things that Muslims do uh, uh, on, on Eid, including the sacrifice of animals, there was a, a ridiculous situation where, if um, and and some MD Muslims in Pakistan were found themselves um, in front of the in front of the law courts because they had been um, uh, their neighbours had approached the police to say, I believe that this individual may have done the most horrific thing, which was to sacrifice a goat for Eid, which is one of the most basic things that Muslims do. Uh, and and because because I don't think that they're a Muslim, that, that hurts my sensibilities. Um and and in and a in a and in the same week, incredibly, uh, Professor Abdul Salam, who was a Nobel Prize winning physicist's and a proud Pakistani and a, and a member of the Ahmadi Muslim community had his um, life celebrated by um, Imperial College London, which is one of the most uh, prestigious and prominent science universities in the world, where he formed the uh, or helped form the Department of Theoretical Physics. He was celebrated and a library was named for him. Um, just at the end of June, he was an Ahmadi Muslim, and someone um, ironically um, uh, sent, uh, uh, sent a tweet saying that if uh, uh, you know Professor Abdul Salam is being celebrated, but if he were alive now and he, if he were in Pakistan, then then you know he he would be condemned for for having um, celebrated Eid um, rather than celebrated for for his achievements um, and for raising the profile of Pakistan as a as a nation. So a, a really a really painful um, reminder of the fact that this is sadly not limited to the behaviours of um, uh, 
particular nation states and we and we see we see this everywhere and 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 very sadly we're in we're in danger also of othering uh, for instance the entirety of the russian nation because of the actions of their leaders um and and there there's a there's a huge amount of now within the within the western media and more broadly of anti-russian sentiment which has which has got to the point where it is it is against the against all uh, russian uh, ethnic groups uh, rather than being what it should be which is a which is if you if you want to condemn the activities of a uh, of a nation um which is which is a, a perfectly reasonable thing to do for invading Ukraine, um, but getting to the point where we are uh, essentially saying that um, that all Russians are evil, which seems to be the narrative which is being promulgated at the moment. That that's a, a, a again the same. It's the same sort of uh, very sad a human tendency to say, okay, I'm going to just because certain individuals have behaved in this way i'm going to paint everyone with the same brush um and and i guess that 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 is the thing that we that's the lesson that we fail to learn again and again and again um and just as we might sit here and condemn the the israeli government for their actions we wouldn't say that that means that all jews are um uh, culpable um because of the actions of the israeli government and far from it um uh, and but it but it is a it's a really difficult thing um to be able to move forward uh with as uh, as humanity more broadly we seem to be stuck in uh, within these same paradigms again and again and again yeah so in pakistan i think um, the situation is a sort of a tragic comedy because you know uh, there were headlines uh, in pakistani newspapers about uh, some goats being uh, amadi goats you know mm-hmm. they, were, <laughs> they were arresting uh, goats because they were owned by the amadi community and those goats were taken away because they were supposed to be following the amadi creed of islam and you know uh, Uh, Pakistan keeps surprising me in terms of uh, you know the stupidity of uh, laws that are that are being made and being followed in the name of Islam which of course doesn't serve Islam but uh, you know continues to put Pakistan in a situation where globally the country uh, seems to be becoming uh, you know uh, a sort of a joke for other mm. people to uh, to laugh at um, and just to give you a quick brief of of why um, this is happening because i think your audience may be surprised and a bit amused about why um, you know what kind of possible law could exist that would allow uh, um, law enforcement agencies of a country to go and arrest some goats and people who are trying to sacrifice animals in pursuit of abrahamic tradition uh, you know we also must know that um sacrificing animals um as is not just confined to islam but it has been an abrahamic tradition and is common to many religions so the argument of the law enforcement agencies in pakistan that um, these are imitating uh, islamic practices by sacrificing goats or other animals is in fact a false premise in the first place because you know this is done in many par- many major religions across the world and it's not confined to only islam or muslims or ahmadis 
but the the law that um, is used to uh, persecute Ahmadis uh, for imitating Islam actually was challenged, you know, in 1980s in Pakistan uh, with the Supreme Court of Pakistan by uh, some Ahmadi lawyers. And uh, the Ahmadi lawyers, in fact, raised this argument in the Supreme Court of Pakistan that um, that where does it in Quran mention that uh, that Ahmadis or non-Muslims cannot read Quran? Mm. Uh, so they asked for court to to find out from the other party whether the Quran actually actively prohibits uh, itself to be read by non-Muslims. Of course, there is no single verse in the Quran which says that, and in fact, the Quran. Uh, uh, promotes it being read by non-Muslims because otherwise, how would you actually propagate the uh, the uh, the religion itself if you inhibit or prohibit the reading of its main text or scripture? So you know it is of course counterintuitive, and they were unable to find a verse in the Quran. And you know what the 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 law that was then invoked by the Supreme Court to continue the argument and hand a judgment to Ahmadis was the was the uh, law of propertyship or or uh, uh, property ownership mm. um, which is to say that the court said that Islam is actually a commercial brand and that any Ahmadi who is using Islamic names or Islamic practices is violating a brand name which is a commercial violation actually mm. and so uh, you know Lawyers across the world were shocked, and in fact, many commented on the fact that this is the first time that religion has been branded as a commercial entity, and people have been punished for using religious epithets or practices in as in violation of a commercial practice. Um, and that is the law that is invoked in Pakistan to persecute Ahmadis, mm. uh, and which must be the basis for confiscating the animals and stopping Ahmadis from sacrificing um, animals because it appears to violate the principle of commercial law or property uh, or trademark uh, of Islam that is held by majority Muslims in Pakistan. Now, how hilarious and tragic it can be, mm. as you can imagine. Because, I mean, if you follow that logic through, then they would have to demonstrate that they, in fact, were the first ones to use all of these trademarks and that there is no prior ownership or right of ownership and that some and that somehow they have the right to this in perpetuity um I mean, the, the argument itself is utterly utterly vacuous of course and ridiculous and, and and clearly just just a form of gaslighting in order to justify um religious bigotry and 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 the religious hatred in in Pakistan uh, but it does, as you say, it makes an utter mockery of the nation, of the entire country, when um, this is what the law courts come up with, and and that uh, the the world looks at Pakistan and thinks, okay, this this surely now a seventy five year old nation that it, that is um, come to maturity has set itself on the world stage, has established itself from an economic perspective. Um, let's look at Bangladesh. Let's look at India. Bangladesh, for 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 various reasons, have, has managed to make itself into an economic powerhouse. Now, whether that is sustainable or not is a different question, and it it also has its own challenges around religious bigotry. 
but Pakistan itself has done nothing in terms of its economic development and and yet the authorities there and the um the the religious standard bearers focus on the persecution of a minoritized group in Pakistan over the general welfare and well-being of the nation and of and of individuals when uh, people go hungry when children go uneducated when individuals don't have access to good health care when there is an exploitative economic system where money is held in the hands of very few individuals um and 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 this is a situation that is kind of um uh, in within within pakistani society is a is echoes of the past where um uh, much of the land and much of the wealth was held by by uh, individuals um and uh, uh you know go, going back to the dames uh, going back to the times of of uh, sort of princely states throughout throughout the india um, but one would think that at this point in in history we'd gotten away from that and that 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 situation would have changed but it hasn't and you still see all of politics in pakistan framed through this this uh, same lens of um, uh, economic inequality uh, within the country. Um, but despite all of this, and despite the fact that the people of Pakistan are suffering, the focus is on something entirely ridiculous and, and something that, that fails to really answer um, the needs of the Pakistani people themselves. And that is a tragedy in, in every single sense. And one has to ask the question, who benefits from this? No one does, actually. I think uh, it is certainly a loss for Pakistan, and I think that across the world, wherever you have had uh, persecution of minorities, nations and uh, societies have been drained of their best potential. And, you know, uh, it's not just this, but the situation in Pakistan is now so bad that, you know, there has been exodus of young people from Pakistan, and mm. Pakistan is losing whatever human capital it had trained. Uh, of course, the human capital situation in Pakistan is really bad, but of course now, with all this um, havoc that has been, uh, you know, unleashed in Pakistan with uh, lack of uh, law and and uh, this sort of persecution um, at random of of communities, has uh, really deprived the country of um, of its uh, human capital. But but you know, let's also look at what is really happening. So this sort of a virus um, going up, going outside Pakistan, you know, uh, we've also had now recent incidents in the UK where two um, local party councillors um, in Walsall were found chanting, uh, you know, anti-AMVS slogans mm. and distributing uh, literature related to an extremist organization in the UK. Um, and I'm quite sure that the UK government will take notice of this and will try and curb this from the very beginning. Because, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, even educated Pakistanis who migrate abroad and, and, you know, are even sometimes born abroad are subject to this sort of uh, hatred um, and seem to follow this on for political expediency. Mm. Uh, but let's not forget that the situation um, is uh, dire in Pakistan, but it is certainly not very easy for Ahmadis, uh, even uh, in Western countries, where these sort of groups continue to, uh, you know, 
target and marginalize Ahmadis um, across the world in all kinds of situations. Uh, and apart from being able to raise this with the law enforcement agencies and brain, Ahmadis have entirely remained peaceful in their response to this sort of mm. situation. And I've continuously advocated for peaceful resolution and um, adherence to human values and tolerance uh, for uh, for everyone, because uh, you know that's ultimately how this battle is going to be won. That uh, we as humans should be able to adhere to universal human values and uh, consider humanity as the as the overall framework, rather than narrow narrow interests and hatred. Mm. Um, uh, unfortunately, that uh, seems to pervade many societies right now, and I hope that um, UK doesn't uh, go that way. Certainly, um, certainly not the way the Pakistan has been uh, going for now. Mm. Mm. Uh, thank, thank you for that, Dr. William. Re- really fascinating discussion. We're coming up to the last few minutes of this part of the program now, and I, and I couldn't not mention a piece that came up in the news in the last day or so, which was about cluster bombs. And these are really horrifying uh, military munitions. They're bombs that get dropped from airplanes, which contain hundreds of little bomblets, which explode when they hit the ground or don't explode. And some of them remain buried under the ground and explode later and possibly explode when a child is walking across them. And these are bombs which have been banned by over 100 countries and, and condemned as being... Um, just the just the worst sort of munition in many many ways, uh, for that very reason because they expose civilians to huge amounts of risk. Um, the USA is one of those countries which does not um, ban the use of cluster bombs, and they are sending cluster bombs to Ukraine, and and many countries have uh, condemned this. Some more openly than than others. Certainly, the New Zealand government, probably most vocally, has said that it's completely unacceptable. Um, and many have, have pointed out that um, uh, that if, that if the Ukrainian uh, government um, had the high moral ground in this conflict, then they will rapidly lose it if if they start engaging in the use of of these sorts of munitions um, in their in their fight against the Russians. And it's really uh, you know the, the people talk about a just war and the, and the principles of a just war. Um, and and probably very few people are aware, and we don't have time at the moment to go into detail. A very very few people are probably aware of the idea that Islam also puts forward the concepts of a just war, and one of those very strong concepts um, is the idea that one does not um, attack or kill innocent civilians in any sort of conflict, no no matter what the situation is that you find yourself in. Um, and so I, th- I think this is to be condemned and to po- be pointed out that the use of these sorts of munitions and others um, is is just not right. Indeed, uh, we don't have time for now, but I believe that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, laid very clearly uh, what would perhaps be even far better rules um, of war mm. uh, than even the Geneva Convention, where he mentioned that in a war, Children, women, um, old people, uh, religious people are not to be hurt. Uh, he, in fact, mentioned that even trees should not be cut down. Um, but here we see uh, sorts of ammunition that would incinerate, uh, you know, large chunks of population. Mm-hmm. And 
this sort of horrible weapon that uh, these cluster bombs are where children die even years after mm. the bomb has exploded and parts of it are left uh, maims children uh, over a number of decades and it should be condemned in the most harsh and the most uh, vociferous way possible uh, and i hope that uh, it uh, that, that that governments in fact move and try and stop this supply of cluster bombs to ukraine uh, and, and this would be a real tragedy if, if it does go through mm. thank you dr Reem. and um yeah ab- uh, absolutely I, I think maybe there's an opportunity for us to have a wider discussion at some point about um, the Islamic principles of a of a just war, um, because you know p- p- people will say, well, you know, there's there's never any need for war, but there is there is oftentimes, very sadly, the need for defence, uh, and and the people in a nation need need to defend themselves, and um, and there are some very clear Islamic rules around this, under what circumstances you can. Uh, defend yourself and then how you can defend yourself if you find yourself in that situation so perhaps something we can discuss in detail on a, on a later program but um, I'd like to end just by thanking uh, Dr. Aleem for joining us again today and on Weekend World on, on The Voice of Islam. Dr. Aleem thank you very much as always a fascinating discussion. Thank you. And that was uh, Dr. Abdul Aleem and um, we will certainly have him back on the program in, in uh, uh, future episodes here, here of Weekend World. And we're coming up to 11 o'clock now, and we'll have the news, and then and then we'll be back. And after the news, we will have an opportunity to listen to a podcast from our colleagues at Rational Religion um, uh, and uh, some, some really interesting topics, as always. Uh, um, and if you want to listen again to Weekend World, then you can do so by going to SoundCloud and searching for Voice of Islam, then Weekend World. And if you want to tweet at us, then tweet at Voice of Islam UK. And if you want to give us a call, then 0208-687-7878 is our number. You're listening to Weekend World on the Voice of Islam. Assalamualaikum. Welcome back to Weekend World on the Voice of Islam. The time is two minutes past 11 on today, Sunday, the 9th of July, 2023. So the first time of the program, we had the um, privilege of listening to Dr. Abdul Alim having a conversation with him about um, various things. We spoke about um, the attack on the Janine refugee camp and the murder of individuals there. We spoke about the situation in in uh, India and the and the rising um, Hindu nationalism. We also spoke about and and. Uh, the situation in Pakistan and and the uh, the fact that minorities in Pakistan um, are, find themselves in in pretty dire situation because of the the actions of the authorities there and the persecution of of minoritized groups, including Ahmadi Muslims. Uh, now you have the opportunity to listen to our colleagues from Rational Religion talking about the need for religion. Um, and um, I'd like to thank all of uh, our listeners for uh, listening to Weekend World here on The Voice of Islam. Uh, do keep tuned to the program and, and uh, join us again soon. Um, and uh, and if you want to tweet at us, then you can tweet at us at Voice of Islam UK. Uh, thank you for listening to Weekend World. It's all about the mangoes at the moment. Well, actually, it's all about the heat. But if there's one silver lining to the excruciating Pakistani summer, it's mango season. Hailed here as the king of fruits, mangoes inspire a passionate devotion. 
and with so many varieties on offer, arguments about which one is best are enough to divide friends and families apart forever. This year, close to where I live, the inaugural Fuzzlomer Mango exhibition is taking place, so we decided to pop down and find out what mangoes are really all about. A lot of the producers here are from Sindh, and it seems that mangoes from the province have an edge over the rest of Pakistan. There are between 20 and 25 different varieties of mango. The most famous are the ones from Sindh. The unique thing about these mangoes from the Sindh province is that they are harvested first. That is, we harvest them from April and we finish harvesting by the end of May. The mangoes in the Punjab, for instance, haven't even started being harvested yet. Having a longer shelf life also works in favor of the Sindh mangoes. If you look at it from an export point of view, uh, then we have to look at where the demand is. And the demand is for the Sindri mango. And the reason for that is its shelf life. And you can keep this mango in a container even for as much as 30 days and its taste is really good too, its flesh is very thick and really smooth. Fighting in the corner of the Punjab, though, is the very popular Chonsa. Coming in second place is the Chonsa, which is really popular in both the local markets and international market. The only downside of the Chonsa mango is that its shelf life isn't as long, and so the exporters need to send the mangoes by air, not by ship. Nevertheless, its taste, its smell and its sweetness is such that people really like it. Away from the technical and economic side of things, what I really want to know is which of these mangoes I should be eating. And the popular consensus seems to point to a local variety known as Anvaradol. If you were to ask me, then the Anvaradol and these other local varieties would be the best. If you ask me, then everyone's taste is different. Personally, I would give my vote to the Anvaradol. It's a small mango, but its fragrance is so strong that if you have a box of ripe mangoes in your house, then the perfume will spread so far that your neighbors will know that you have a box of those mangoes at home. Its smell is amazing, but its taste is so incredible that if you had a, a crate full and started eating them, you wouldn't want to stop. 
In fact, you'd want to finish the whole lot and not let anyone else eat. It's been a few days now since we were at the fair and um, I just received a couple of crates of mangoes at home from somewhere as a gift and I've got to say I'm pretty happy about that. I'm just rustling through opening one of them right now and there's quite a few here so it's going to take me a little while to put them all in the fridge, chill them out before I get to eat them. Anyway, if you're like me and you enjoy your mangoes, then next time you're digging into one, Keep in mind that in places like Pakistan, mangoes aren't just a fruit. They're a way of life, they're a passion, and they're also very big business. We're going to watch a video from Stephen Fry that I've recently come across. Let's take a look. We tend to set ourselves goals of, oh, if, if only I could live in that kind of a village in, you know, in the south of England, like a quite near a station and nice little house, but not too expensive. And then you get it. And so, yeah, you live in the suburbs. Hooray. Oh, maybe that car, that, that new mm. one there, that Tesla or whatever, then I'll be happy. You don't literally say then I'll be happy, but there's a kind of sense of that's all I really want. And each of these goals is met and it isn't it. The line of T.S. Eliot, that's not it. That's not it at all. And, and we go through life thinking, that's not it. There is something in all of us, a whole, a need for connection and love and truth and, and a sense of something beautiful beyond. You're never happy because of your status, because of things you've achieved. You, happiness comes from somewhere else. And of course, I've yet to meet anyone who can tell you where it comes from. So Stephen Fry is, uh, holds a special place in our hearts yeah. um, because he was formative in the creation of this channel. And before we tell you about that story, we're gonna, let's just analyze what he said there. So what did you take away from that? So I, I can't disagree with most of what he said. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he, he talked about- Apart from the last line, maybe. Apart from that was right, right at the end. <laughs> and of course, there's nobody who could have told me possibly what the answer to that question was. <laughs> All right, okay, Stephen. Um, but we'll get to that in a minute. I think the key point he's making is that um, he's coming. He's an he's an older gentleman. I don't know how old he is. Let's just have a look at how it's fine, it's relevant. How old is he? No, it is relevant. He's 65 now, born in 57. So, I mean, he's he's an older guy and he's kind of, I think this happens to a lot of people as they get older, that they start to realize that all of those things that they set themselves up for in life, all the achievements and the goals that they had for themselves, mm. none of them, despite having achieved them often, have actually brought them what they sought. Mm. Uh, and it's similar to what we discussed in our last live stream about the Love Songs and Age Philip Larkin poem. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to go through that again. Mm -hmm. But um, the key point, I think, is that he, he's saying that we that the the hole in his heart has not been filled by his material uh, achievements. And, you know, Stephen Fry's material achievements are many. Hmm. I mean, he is one of the most recognizable faces in the Western world, and he has attained a status as, rightly or wrongly, as an intellectual, hmm. um, and as a and as a comic and an actor, and yeah. as a, a cultural icon for the Brits in particular. Yeah, which is, you know, it's just really up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Out Absolutely. of all the people. Yeah. So. Yet, despite that, he's confessing before the camera there that none of that really brought him any uh, lasting contentment and peace of mind. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's... He talks about the hole in the heart 
And other people have called it a God-shaped hole. So if you remember our interview with David Belinsky, right. he made reference to the fact that there is a God-shaped hole. Um, I think I think he did in our interview. Or he, if he didn't, he may have done it in a previous interview I watched of him. Yeah, He talks about the God-shaped hole, and he was quoting, in fact, someone else. Yeah. Uh, as you can see, I've come very prepared with that statement. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, But Stephen Fry doesn't want to say the word God. Yeah. You know, but he, he gets as close as possible to saying God without saying God. Hmm. He says that we want something which is, you know, beautiful and uh, uh, perfect, which is beyond us. Hmm. Right. Which is and, and in that expression, he's kind of talking of something which is transcendent. Yeah. Right. Um, but what transcendent of what? Presumably material reality, presumably hmm everyday human experience hmm. presumably something which is absolute and fundamental to the universe not something which is incidental and contrived right so what you're saying is that he is he's recognizing that the worldly things which he has gained in abundance which he has achieved so well are not enough and he's thinking well if i've conquered the world in a way he has in his sphere yeah. which is quite a lot which is quite an expansive sphere he has conquered that world but that's not enough. So he's recognizing I need to go beyond the world, something beautiful beyond. But then he says, there is nothing that can, um, there's no one that I've met that can actually tell me that. He said, of course. Uh, yeah. And, and you can almost <laughs> tell there was an, I think, and this is speculation, but I think there was an element of self-deception there when he said that, even in the pause that he gave before that, it was a sense of, um, there was a sense that he was in denial of something. Well, the fact that he said, of course, is almost funny because... Um, she doth protest too much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, she she doth protest too much. So he's almost like saying, oh, well, there's there, I, I'm, I'm boxed into a corner because nobody's been able to give me the answer, of course, right? Yeah. Um, which is almost like trying too hard to convince people that nobody's ever given him an answer to that question. Yeah. Now... Before we then dive into our answer to it, let's go to what Stephen Fry said about eight years ago, six, seven, eight years ago, something like that, in a video that he did for the um, British Humanist Society. I think they renamed themselves later as Humanist UK. Um, and we'll see what Stephen Fry said at that point about the meaning of life and the purpose of life. Mm. And we'll see how far he's come. Let's have a look. How can I be happy? Some people believe that there is one single meaning of life. They think that the universe was created for a purpose and that human beings are part of some larger cosmic plan. They think our meaning comes from being part of this plan and is written into the universe waiting to be discovered. A humanist view of meaning in life is different. Humanists do not see that there is any obvious purpose to the universe, but that it is a natural phenomenon with no design behind it. Meaning is not something out there waiting to be discovered, but something that we create in our own lives. And although this vast and incredibly old universe was not created for us, all of us are connected to something bigger than ourselves, whether it is family and community, a tradition stretching into the past, an idea or cause looking forward to the future, or the beautiful wider natural world on which we were born and our species evolved. This way of thinking means that there is not just one big meaning of life, but that every person will have many different meanings in their life. Each one of us is unique, and our different personalities depend on a complex mixture of influences from our parents, our environment, and our connections, 
They change with experience and changing circumstances. There are no simple recipes for living that are applicable to all people. We have different tastes and preferences, different priorities and goals. One person may like drawing, walking in the woods and caring for their grandchildren. Another may like cooking, watching soap operas, savouring a favourite wine or a new food. We may find meaning through our family, our career, making a commitment to an artistic project or a political reform. In simple pleasures, such as gardening, in hobbies, or in a thousand other ways, giving rein to our creativity or our curiosity, our intellectual capacities or our emotional life. The time to be happy is now, and the way to find meaning in life is to get on and live it as fully and as well as we can. So, I mean, they actually updated the animation from when we yeah. uh, responded to it uh, many years ago. Yeah. It was all about us, I think. It was all because of us. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's why they updated this soulless animation. Um, so that was, you know, just to break down what he's saying there, he's very confident that you can have meaning and purpose in life from just based on your own kind of whims, priorities, interests, etc., etc. Maybe gardening. it's gardening, maybe it's sculpture. Yeah. Um, Soap operas. Maybe it's waving slightly like these animated heads do. <laughs> Whatever it is, you know, you will find, you can find your purpose in that rather than cosmic design being, you know, woven into the fabric of the universe. It's I mean, actually just our whims. And if you follow your whims and your personal preferences, you can find your happiness basically that way. And and how do you how do you find that contrast in, in, a, in a fairly short period of time? <laughs> Ten years. Yeah, because, I mean, in the first video, he was pretty explicit that uh it doesn't matter he was like it really doesn't matter what you do you just end up miserable um and, and you just end up at a place where the contemporary video now yeah in the yeah. contemporary video the, so the first video we showed was like well yeah. it doesn't matter what you do it, it seems to be the case we all have a hole in our heart and it's always looking for something which is beautiful and extraordinary and, and transcendent hmm. and nothing we do none of our status that we achieve he mentioned none of the amb ambitions that we have in our lives none of them really fulfill that hole hmm. and it's we're always left with the sense of longing and, and loss mm. and whereas in this video he's like well if you want to do gardening you you, you get that shovel out <laughs> yeah. um you know if you want to uh i don't know what was the other one sculpture soap operas political cause yeah i mean there's basically he was saying that there are a thousand different ways to be find your meaning depending on your interests in life yeah um and in the first video we show which is his later video actually He's saying that it doesn't matter what you do, you're always going to be miserable. Hmm. Um, so, so what do you think that says about his own journey then? I think it says, I mean, we were talking about the evolution of Stephen Fry. I mean, in a sense, I think, to be honest, I think Stephen Fry probably knew that he would be miserable, that they, these things don't satisfy when he made the humanist video. Essentially, yeah. You know, but the reality is he was pushing the party line on the humanist association. Yeah, and front. atheism was, that was, you know, the new atheism was still in, in much stronger force back then. Yeah. And now there's this cultural shift towards recognizing that uh, taking meaninglessness as your meaning, um, surprisingly, is an unfruitful approach to life. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, they, they, you know, he says, oh, you can have meaning in doing this and doing that and doing this and doing that. Really, what he was saying is there's, there's, there's almost an infinite number of ways you can distract yourself mm. 
from the question of your purpose in life. Yeah. That's actually what he's saying, which is that, and then as long as you can just, you know, keep on the hamster wheel of your particular interest Mm. without looking out to the wider universe and asking yourself the big questions, you know, you could just maybe just be struck down by a heart attack terribly one day and you won't even have to have considered the real serious questions. Mm. Um, And so that might be able to be sufficient for your existence. And he began the uh, video from eight, ten years ago talking about essentially deriding... Uh, yeah. not, not explicitly, but in a, in a way implicitly, the uh, religious perspective that yeah. design and purpose is, is uh, say, woven into the fabric of the universe and is something that is set for us, yeah. something which we have to discover rather than create. Um, and and what is that from? I, I guess this is we're going to be talking from the Islamic perspective, though. I think in many respects this is pretty pretty shared across yeah. uh, all the major religions. Uh, what is the, what is the Quranic take on this? So the Quranic take is is you know briefly it's not something we discover even hmm. but, you know or recognize the, the proper purpose of life is actually something we accept hmm. you know because the quran describes itself as a reminder and it's actually reminding you of what you already know which he yeah, already explained in the first video hmm. which is that he's looking for transcendent beauty hmm. you know if you took the word to name god i mean that is most certainly one of the attributes of god he has described hmm. transcendent beauty hmm. um you know as the famous uh, saying in islam goes the prophet muhammad's peace be upon him said that allah says you know allah is i am beautiful and i love think i love that which is beautiful allah is hmm. beautiful and loves that which is beautiful hmm. um and so what, in a way, he's doing is he's showing that his worldview is fundamentally flawed, mm. okay? And it's actually fundamentally false. Okay. Um, because if he has a, a worldview which limits him to a way of being which is fundamentally unsatisfying for human beings, then how can that worldview be posited as the sustainable and a sustainable answer for how people should live their lives. Yeah. At a fundamental level, if his way of looking at the world cannot fulfill human, the human soul, the human spirit, the human right. psyche, you might say, then how can we, how can the humanist association continue to have that video up once he said that? So what you're saying then is that his, him saying this now is testimony that the, that the atheistic humanist, uh, basically the atheist worldview cannot satisfy us and therefore is the the wrong is not how we are um it's not natural to us yeah right it's not intrinsic yeah you know the the fact that we actually long for something should be evidence that there is something yeah it shouldn't be evidence that we're deluded yeah like to begin with the premise that our the natural and, and you know he talks about how um, every human being is unique and different. Well, if every human being is so unique and different, why is it that every human being has this feeling of nothingness? And this isn't exactly new, because and that's the kind of thing that surprised me was that, you know, he's saying something which has been known for thousands of years. Like all the kind of wise people in society have been people who've been saying, don't chase material, you know, design. even the Stoics I'm sure he's very familiar with, you know, they, they spoke a lot about this, don't be trapped up in the world. And they weren't like super uh, spiritual or, or religious as such although they had a, a degree of a lineage from Socrates, Prophet Socrates, as we believe he is, peace be upon him. Um, even they said, you know, don't be trapped by this. And all the wise people of every age said, don't be trapped. But he was, it's so strange that he's a kind of font of wisdom or seen as a font of wisdom, but he's hes discovered this. But the way he spoke about it showed that he has real conviction because obviously it's his life of experience. Yeah. Um, but just going back to what you said about how the there's still this longing. What does this tell you? This, this longing that we have for something beyond... What does it tell you? And is that, can you, I think we have a quote from, from the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Yeah, maybe we could get that up on the screen. Can we get that up on the screen? That would be a good way of um, 
addressing yeah. it. Okay, we got it. Yeah, go for it. Okay, perfect. So, <coughs> so he says, um, I don't know where you've got it from starting. What's the first line you've got there? Of the natural. Okay, so yeah, he says, this is in the book Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, hmm. um, which is if anybody wanted to find out what the what the teachings of Islam are uh, and the kind of underlying true spirit of Islam, this is the book to go to. Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam by um, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, um, the promised Messiah and Imam Mahdi. And on page 80, there's a section called Search for an Exalted Being. Hmm. And he says, of the natural conditions of man is his search after an exalted being towards whom he has an inherent attraction. This is manifested by an infant from, infant from the moment of its birth. As soon as it is born, it displays a spiritual characteristic that it inclines towards its mother and is inspired by love of her. As its faculties are developed and its nature begins to display itself openly, this inherent quality is displayed more and more strongly. It finds no comfort except anywhere except in the lap of its mother. If it is separated from her and finds itself at a distance from her, its life becomes bitter. Heaps of bounties fail to beguile it away from its mother in whom all its joy is concentrated. It feels no joy apart from her. What then is the nature of the attraction which an infant feels so strongly towards its mother? It is the attraction which the true creator has implanted in the nature of man. The same attraction comes into play whenever a person feels love for another. It is a reflection of the attraction that is inherent in man's nature towards God, as if he is in search of something that he misses, the name of which he has forgotten, and which he seeks to find in one thing or another, which he takes up from time to time. A person's love of wealth or offspring or wife or his soul being attracted towards a musical voice are all indications of his search for the true beloved. As man cannot behold with his physical eyes the imperceptible being, who is latent like the quality of fire in everyone, but is hidden, nor can he discover through him through the exercise of imperfect reason, he has been misled grievously in his search and has mistakenly assigned his position to others. Mm. So, I mean, that probably summarizes this issue mm. and gives the answer to it better than any human being has ever done so before. You know, that that the name of which he has forgotten is, is a really... Uh almost like a life-changing description yeah it is um and if you think about what the what the founder of the Ahmadi muslim community is saying is that he's kind of pointing out that right from our birth we have a longing for something beyond us and perhaps as a child it's you know we our horizons are very um are very close to us so it goes to the mother and it goes to, but there's something a natural attraction to something beyond yeah and you know what stephen fry said he actually got to give to the guy he is articulate and insightful in many respects um and especially here in, in not insightful i mean he's insightful as to the problem and he's then insightful he... into the depths of his despair <laughs> and he's yeah. and he's placed his finger on it which is that he's looking for something beyond him yeah and this is what the promise i was talking about that there that we yeah. even as a child we recognize that there is something beyond and we want unity with it yeah um and this is all a reflection of the ultimate um the one from whom we are yeah you know that is god our creator yeah who is much you know to whom we owe much greater allegiance than even our parents and that, there's a lot to say about the second humanist video we, the humanist video we, we watched and the first one still which we haven't mentioned or touched upon i mean which comes to this particular issue which is that he said at the end of the first video he said and of course you know i haven't found anybody to give me an answer to this hmm. but as you've very well pointed out, I mean, this is this is this is religion one hundred and one. Yeah. This is this is belief in God one hundred and one that the world will not satisfy you. Yeah, and that actually the search for God, who is that Iman, immanent, yeah. transcendent being, will. Um, 
So that's number one. Then the second thing is, you know, in the humanist video, um, he talked also about the fact that there's no evident design from the universe, Mm. that they don't find any intrinsic purpose to the universe. Mm. Um, But this is, you know, a great manifestation of the fact that, you know, there's that verse of the Quran that I'm thinking of, which says, you know, we will surely show them signs around them and within themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is one of the signs within himself. Yeah. And he's 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 failed to recognize the signs that are around him yeah. of the fine-tuning of the universe, the fact that the universe came from a state of nothingness, the fact that all the laws and constants of nature are finely tuned to an extraordinary degree, which I, nobody has to go into detail. Yeah. I mean, you know, Stephen Fry will know that better than, you know, most people. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that there are these extraordinary signs as to the intricate nature of the universe now clearly designed, not just life is, but the fundamental constants which permit a stable universe to exist. Yeah. Right? So, for example, to give a small... Can you give any small example, cosmological constant you could throw out or... Well, there's tons. I mean, if gravity was stronger, the universe would collapse in itself too quickly, that stars and solar systems and therefore planets like ours wouldn't form. If gravity was weaker, then it would expand out so rapidly that you wouldn't have... Um, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have stars forming. stars forming, therefore you wouldn't have the higher elements. Uh, and there's a million of these. And, and the balance between those two is... Yeah, well, all of them, all of them basically, especially if you take them together, they, they exist on a knife edge. Yeah. Um, so that's a really, really beautiful what you said there about, you know, the signs within yourself and the signs outside. Because the first, the first video, in a sense, he denied the signs outside of himself. And the second video, the more recent one, he acknowledged that um, he is recognizing something of a sign within himself. Yeah. But whether he truly appreciates it is another question. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, maybe we can introduce Stephen Fry to uh, the <laughs> Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and actually the author of the Quran, just God himself. So what does the Quran say about what is our... What is our purpose on this topic? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, the Quran is pretty explicit. It doesn't. It doesn't give you when it comes to the purpose of human creation. It doesn't like give you allegories and nice stories. <laughs> like tries to figure like stories and just you know you have to kind of derive it from a complex mm. philosophical principle. It's very 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 clear. Okay, mm. chapter forty four. It states, and we created not the heavens and the earth and all that is between them in sport. We created them not but for an eternal purpose, but most of them understand not. And right. in other verses, it explains chapter 51, verse 57. And I have not created the jinn and men, but that they should worship me. Hmm. I desire of them no provision, neither do I desire that they should feed me. Hmm. Surely it is Allah himself who is the great sustainer, the Lord of power, the strong. Ah, wonderful, wonderful verse. And it's a beautiful, taking them together, I think, they're very nice because the first one, it says that there is an eternal purpose, but most people do not understand what that eternal purpose is. And that the purpose of the heavens and the earth in its creation is not for sport, it's not a play. Yeah, which is kind of, you know, he was basically talking about playing. Yeah. In 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 his original humanist video, he was talking about, you know, do a bit of sculpture, do a bit of gardening, (laughs) maybe some frisbee, and you'll be golden. (laughs) Yeah, but, and then the second verse, the quote, you know, quote, I gave, which is, I've not created the jinn and men, but that they should worship me. It's again one of these, I love these kinds of phrases that God uses in the Quran because they are the strongest grammatical construction yeah, yeah, yeah. for a particular purpose. So if you said, if God said, I've created the jinn and men that they should worship me, you might think, okay, well, they, they, that's our purpose, but our purpose could also be other things, 
right? Our purpose could also be gardening. It could also be this because, yeah, that's one of our purposes to worship God. Yeah. But then there could be other purposes because the verse would just say, I have created men, men that they should worship me. Yeah. But this, the way it's actually phrased is much more powerful. This is, I have not created the jinn and men except that they should worship me. Hmm. That There is an exclusion of all else yeah. besides the the purpose that God gives. In the same way that the credo of Islam is la ilaha illallah, la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, there is none worthy of worship except God. Yeah. Um, again, it's not that there is only one God, it's that there is nothing except God. Yeah. So, and then it goes on to say, I desire them no provision, nor that I, do I desire that they should feed me. You know, the first verse might give the person an impression that God needs us. Hmm. That actually the reason for all this is because God wants some adoration yeah. because he's insecure, you know, that he he just needs this kind of devotion to him. Hmm. But, I mean, maybe you could explain what the meaning of worship is then and, and actually what the fundamental purpose of life is. Well, there's a very beautiful um, uh, saying of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, which he reported was, was revealed to him, where God said that I was a hidden treasure and I desired to be known. So I created the creation. And uh, I remember you pointed out something very beautiful to me, which is that, you know, if God had a need, he also fulfilled it himself because he, he was able to, because the the criticism may be, well, God therefore needs us, yeah but actually he doesn't need us because he he fulfilled his need (laughs) (laughs) through creating us. Yeah, exactly. And in doing so, he exercised his mercy because we didn't exist and now we exist and we're able to find spiritual fulfillment in relationship with God and also enjoy his, uh, his creation in the next life. We'll enjoy um, in the afterlife and the nearness to, to him, to God himself. Mm. So like, it's all kind of pure mercy and bounty that comes from God mm. in fulfilling his own purpose. Mm. Now, abd, you know, worship in the mm. Islamic sense, uh, doesn't just mean, um, physical worship. In fact, physical worship, as we understand it, kind of the, the prescribed prayers, that is a, um, sense it's a it's an ark or a ship for the for the underlying spirit which is uh, a way of refining yourself in a way that is pleasing to god and whereby god will then come and reach you and develop your relation his relationship with you yeah. so it's basically just a vessel worship physical worship that we do is a vessel for us to to meet god yeah, but it's absolutely necessary because, you know, this is something that the second Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in this book, I've just finished reading Beacon of Youth, points out, hmm. which is that the reason, for example, that Christianity has no real f- fundamental, um, what, what, well, why churches are being hollowed out from Christians, hmm. why Christians... Being bought by Muslims, why, 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 why Christians, yeah. So why Christians, for example, even if they, they have to turn up once a week hmm. to do their worship and they can't even do that. Whereas hmm. Muslims are filling mosques five days or five, five times a day often, hmm. right? Multiple times there, or at least every Muslim should, you know, generally tends to go to the mosque at least once a day. So... You know, the reason is, is because they don't have a physical form of worship hmm. because in rejection of the Jew, Jew, um, Jewish teaching yeah. and the um, the extremism of the Jews at the time of Jesus's appearance, which is that they emphasize the physicality and the ritual so much, uh, they understood Jesus's message of, of focusing on the inner spirit as a rejection of entirely the ritual or entirely the physical movements hmm. and as a result the christians have discarded all kinds of concept of uh, a prescribed physical motion and the consequence of that is is that if you don't have to physically do something hmm. eventually you stop doing the inner spiritual turning to god as well yeah because the physical motion actually preserved hmm. it preserved the opportunity for you to turn to god in your spirit yeah. every muslim has this experience that we will go and we'll go to the mosque and pray and we won't necessarily 
we we might or or at home and we might finish our prayer and feel like oh well, I didn't really do that as well as I could mm. right I didn't really focus on God as well as I could but it provided you the opportunity mm. to do so and the next time you then do it again the physical worship it provides you a fresh opportunity to perfect your worship yeah but if you don't even have the physical prescribed postures mm. you don't have the safeguard you don't have the guardian of your worship mm. it's gone Mm. Uh, and so the physical worship is fundamentally n- necessary and this is why i think you know a lot of christians they kind of deride physical worship they think of it as kind of like you know uh beneath them yeah that they're more philosophically enlightened mm. right that they kind of can just turn to god and have like a a, a spiritual reconnection with god yeah. and they fail to appreciate that the the that the soul is tied to the body mm. and the body uh, determines the motions of the soul yeah. You know, so when you walk humbly, you feel humble. When you walk arrogantly, you feel arrogant. When you laugh, you feel happy. When you pretend to weep, you feel sad. And the Quran talks about this, says walk on, walk on the earth humbly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and again, this book, Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, explained this beautifully, that the physical postures are there to actually create the inner change and turn towards God so that when we kneel or prostrate, we are kneeling and our soul kneels and prostrates to God. The funny thing is, is that I think the Christians in a sense have, have recognized this with the evangelical movement. So they have then kind of put back in kind of created, fabricated rituals through music yeah. and through all of their kind of songs and dances and all this. Cause I think they maybe recognize there needs to be something there that's substantial, which, you know, you can gather people for, and there can be some kind of movement. Yeah. Unfortunately that creates a kind of artificial heat, yeah. which is not real spiritual connection. Yeah. Um, so that's uh but it's an interesting that they that they have potentially recognized that but you know worship in islam is is you know this is what we've been talking about is prayer yeah. and the physical form of prayer and how it contains the spiritual prayer but worship also has other aspects so you know when you truly love god and you truly believe that god is beautiful then you also try and adopt the attributes of god in yourself hmm. right and you actually try and reflect those qualities hmm. and in a sense that is that is an aspect of worship it's a part of worship when you truly try and become like uh re- try and reflect god's attributes in yourself to whatever degree that you can yeah and in fact in in a way kind of all of the things in in uh, in the commandments of God, if you follow them, they can be they can be a type of worship in themselves because you're submitting them you're submitting yourself and your entire character to God in that. So worship is actually something which is totally expansive in Islam. It is not just the five daily prayers, although that they are so substantial. It is something which can extend beyond those five daily prayers into actually everything that you do in your life. Because if you do it with the intention of pleasing God and of furthering your relationship with God, then it becomes a means of 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 connecting to God, which is the essence of worship. Yeah, absolutely. I mean one of the if you look at Surah Al Baqarah, the second chapter of the Quran, and it describes the qualities of a believer at the beginning of it. Um I believe it's the second quality it describes. I may have got that wrong, but it says that, you know, those who establish prayer and then it goes on to say, and spend out of that which we have bestowed upon them. Hmm. The key point here is that it's not that people always take that to mean charity, Hmm. that they're bestowing, that they're spending out of that which God has bestowed upon them in terms of money. Yeah. Actually, it doesn't say money. It says that which we have bestowed on them, which means intellect, emotion, feeling, uh, time, uh, all, all these kinds of things. Uh, they're all very important, fundamentally important, and and actually God expects you to spend out of all of them, yeah, um, for His sake. So it, it, 
Islam doesn't require word that and that is all part of your worship. Yeah. So it's it's not just the physical worship, it's actually every aspect of your life attains a sense of meaning and purpose um, because it is all becomes devoted to the one who created you. And that devotion manifests as seeking to benefit his creation fundamentally. And the Quran also talks about that when it says, never shall you attain to righteousness until you spend over that which you love. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, there's one thing I just want to quickly clarify before we move on, which is that we talked about in this verse where it says men and jinn. What is just briefly, what is what is this jinn thing? Does that mean ghosts? What does that mean here? A, a Jinn is, you know, misunderstood term uh, by Muslims broadly, and and the honest answer is is that um, Sunni Muslims, for example, consider jinn to be, you know, energy spirits, hmm. you know, that are um, some are good, some are bad, paranormal, basically, paranormal. Yeah. They basically describe them as paranormal phenomenon. There's no reason to do so. The Ahmadiyya Muslim perspective is pretty straightforward. Jinn simply means that the root of word. From of which jinn is derived as an Arabic word, which means hidden, that which is hidden. Hmm. So that's why you get jannah, for example. Jannah is described as that which is hidden because it's described as the treetops. You cannot see the ground yeah. and the soil from that the which sc- is hidden, that which is covered. Right, Majnun exactly. Means madness. Majnun means madness. Covering of faculties. Exactly, because madness covers the faculty of reason. Majnun is from the same word. And then you also have the fact that you have, um, uh, you know, women are also described in the Quran as jinn, uh, not in the Quran, in Arabic literature as jinn because they are hidden, they're veiled from society. Hmm. typically because they wear the veil um so jinn simply means that which is hidden and and in terms of unseen unseen so it refers to that class of people who are unseen now who are the class of people who are unseen the queen celebrities uh extremely wealthy people who are the the real unseen are just the super rich that you don't see you don't see (laughs) exactly (laughs) so the quran addresses shareholders of banks correct because (laughs) you know people don't people think of them as they're actually uh, they are they are in social terms a separate category yeah you know they live in a different planet because they live in a different planet because they have unlimited wealth they can do what they want they want to be in dubai one day and they want to be in canada the next day they can just go on their private jet and move yeah right they they can eat what they want they can live the kind of lifestyle that they want entirely Mm. they are not constrained Mm. you know even by some simple things as tax laws you know by tax jurisdictions so the quran recognizes that there is a class of people who are who are not the the hoi polloi the ordinary people yeah exactly so jinn and ins ins means the man the, Mm. the ordinary common man um it's important also because um idea god often uh uh the people among the ins take people amongst the jinn to be their gods, Hmm. to be their protectors in society. Yeah. Um, And so God is actually making, drawing a point, which is that he is the God of the jinn as well. Yeah. You know, the jinn ain't on a class with him. Yeah. Okay. The jinn are created beings just like the ins, the men. So that's simple. I wanted to read another verse, if that's okay, about the nature of this life. Can I just also say jinn also therefore covers all, other forms of creation which we may not know about or you know in a different planet so whatever that yeah. it is it is expansive but for the primary application of the quran which is to to mankind it means the people that you see and the people uh and is the people that you do see yeah absolutely um so there's this verse another verse of the quran which kind of it summarizes why don't you read it well you've got it there as well well, I mean, uh, this is, I think, something which is, you know, I think Stephen Fry has experienced this. Because if you think about kind of the, the riches which he has accumulated and the pride that which, which, he's, which, he, which he has to a degree for being such a, a big person in society, 
he's also seen that it's it's kind of um it's dry there's nothing real there so the grant talks about this in chapter 18 says and set forth for them the similitude of the life of this world it is like the water which we send down from the sky and the vegetation of the earth is mingled with it and then it becomes dry grass broken into pieces which the winds scatter and allah has full power over everything so the life of this world is like the water which we send from the sky and veg- it mixes with the vegetation, the crops, then it becomes dry grass broken into pieces and the wind scatter it, which is a very beautiful kind of description of, uh, of, of the life that we lead. You know, people are famous in one, two generations, and then they're essentially forgotten apart from a few fans for maybe another two generations. Then they're basically lost to history. Mm. All of their kind of riches eventually blow. Many of them kind of lose them. They blow away. They're tied up in divorces or inheritance, you know, whatever it is, they can lose their money. And they had, they experience these highs and lows, which are trials from God and themselves. But the beautiful thing about a connection and a, and a real relationship with God is that it's with you wherever you are. And you could be a poor man living in a hut, and you can have that uh, and you'll be richer beyond, you know, Stephen Fry. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, potentially you could argue the good, the best position to be in life is if you have that, that, that relationship with God and you also have, you know, um, the goods of this world. Yeah. You know, there's, there's nothing per se wrong with that, but it becomes meaningless unless it's, unless it's actually part of a spiritual package. Well, I would say that the key point here is that the, the similitude of the life of this world, it applies to, when the world is not utilized for a higher purpose. Hmm. So, you know, we don't believe that a person who use, takes money and then uses it in the way which pleases God, hmm. that doesn't become dry grass, which becomes yeah, scattered. Absolutely. That becomes an action which fulfills its purpose. Yeah. Right. So there's a very, I love this. You pass the trial. Yeah. I love this particular hadith of the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. He saw a goat and um, it had been, sacrificed and all the meat was taken from it. And the only meat, the only part of the goat that was left was the head. Mm. And he walked by it and he said to his companions, everything is saved except the head. <laughs> yeah. So I, I love that because it's an inversion. Yeah. Dependent on a view which looks at it through the purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So for, for from the from the view of the of the of a worldly stance, everything was lost except the head. Yeah, yeah. From the spiritual perspective, everything was saved except the head because the purpose was fulfilled for that animal. Yeah. Right? So that's a wonderful... (laughs) So much wisdom in that. So much wisdom. You could just (laughs) ponder it for days and you just still be getting more pieces out of it. Well, I mean, how do we apply that to our own lives then? (coughs) So, you know, you've got your job, you've got your money, you've got your time, you've got your family, relationships, whatever it is. How do you apply that if you're you're a believer? what What does that mean to you? How do you? How do you live that life then? I think that you always have to make explicitly every intention uh, has to be for the sake of God. Even if it be your job, even if it be making money, yeah. you have to be thinking about what is it, what am I going to do with this money? And you have to say to God, I'm going to do this and this and this with it. Hmm. Because if you don't fill it with an intention for God, your ego will fill it and you'll fill it quickly. Nature abhors a vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum and your your own uh, sense of self will fill um that the intention for which you're doing something. Hmm. So if one is trying to seek the world, one has to be very careful how one, how, how you do it, I think. Uh, hmm. You have to approach it with a great sense of caution and, and you have to be explicit in your mind as to why you're doing it and for what purpose is it going to serve you. Because in reality, from the spiritual perspective, it is better to not have wealth, uh, for example, um, if one isn't going to actually 
use it in the right way because it's going to become a burden on your neck on the day of judgment as to how you how you discharge this duty. Yeah. How does that relate to zakat and the name zakat? So you why don't you explain? Okay, so I mean I was just thinking that zakat is a well, What uh, is zakat for the ordinary Zakat is a you um, may not know. Zakat is a um it's a tax essentially on it's a marginal wealth tax that is that Muslims are supposed to pay mm. and it's money which goes to the poor and the people in difficulty in society yeah. and it is typically levied at 2.5% on kind of wealth that was unused over a certain amount that you need to survive on so you can understand today as a marginal wealth tax essentially and it's called zakat which essentially comes from the the root of the word is purification it's this idea of when you purify something so the tax which which god has said you should pay on your wealth he has told you why you do it in the name itself of the practice hmm. that this is something whereby you can actually purify your wealth and whereby if you give this portion which actually ultimately isn't that much for the sake of god it is something which can purify the whole right yeah, yeah. this this is essentially the, the way of purifying the whole thing hmm. um and in a way you know what you're talking about is you can pay zakat on everything in your life through your intentions and how you intend to use it and how you do use it yeah you know do you spend your time at least a portion of your time you know remembering god or for the sake of creation and if you do so then other aspects of your time will be blessed and you can probably apply that to every as different yeah. part of your life yeah and that is the kind of the beauty of the spiritual outlook is that it is something which pervades everything in your life and everything suddenly then becomes imbued and enriched with meaning yeah where Whereas if you're an atheist, and we've talked about this before, if you're an atheist, that meaninglessness, which your outlook, you know, which is inherent in the atheistic outlook, just pervades over everything. And, and it just washes over everything such that anything that you do, no matter how good you think it is, no matter how nice you, you think it is, no matter what you think it will bring you, it's ultimately meaningless. I remember the Quran talks about that he has created, God has created us for an eternal purpose. Yeah, It's not a limited purpose. He specifies yeah. it's not for sport because because sport is all limited. Yeah. This is an eternal purpose. And that purpose is to worship God yeah. and to actually have a relationship with God. And you do that through explicit worship and also through treating the rest of mankind and the creation of God in a, in a, in a goodly manner. Yeah. So the second Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he kind of uh, refers to this emotion that Stephen Fry has mm. outlined in the first video we play. I wonder if you want to yeah, so I mean, uh, no, I wouldn't say this. This is this. You gotta go for it. Okay, so he says, is in the the periodical, the Muslim Sunrise from 1953. Hmm. Good find, Omar. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure I found it originally, but okay. I'll he writes. He writes. No doubt, God gives, and it's really applicable to Stephen Fry, which is why it's relevant. Hmm. It says, no doubt, God gives some people a goodly share of concentration of mind. Hmm. These people strive to attain various objects political, educational, and cultural, and as a result of continuous efforts, they gain success in their objectives and attain to peace of mind as well. But this peace of mind can be compared to the pleasure which children derive when they get toys. They get this peace of mind not by the achievement of the high objects of their life, but by forgetting them. They fall victims to the intellectual, to intellectual opium. Their brains feed intellectual opium to them. They do, not ha they do have pain but cannot feel it. Feel it. 
Yeah. Which is just incredible. I, I just want to, I just want to read that last bit again. So they, they get this peace of mind, not by the achievement of the high objects of their life, but by forgetting them, they fall victims to this o o intellectual opium. So they have the pain, but they cannot feel it, which I think is a warning to intellectual people in particular, because intellectual people can take pride in their intellectual, um, achievements and their intellectual aspirations. And in a way, they've just got more advanced forms of toys of everyone else. If you're a bit of a, what's the word? Dullard, is that a word? Shows I'm not in that class, clearly. You know, if you're someone who's not particularly smart and you're kind of, you know, impressed by shiny things, maybe you'll go chasing those shiny things and you'll be trying to get the latest car or the latest phone. And that's your kind of, that's, that you think may be the, the purpose of your life. And the intellectual person may look down on that and say, I'm going to figure out, you know, what is personal identity? That That's really, that's my thing. That's going to be my, that's going to be what I contribute to this world. Um, but if that is kind of your, your purpose alone, then it is essentially just a sophisticated toy, which you're, which you're toying with, yeah. if you're actually divorced from real truth. Um, so it's kind of a warning, I think, to intellectual people not to fall prey to that because ultimately, like Stephen Fry is actually saying, you know, and so many intellectuals, so many philosophers have had this experience. Many have ended up killing themselves despite their apparent intellectual achievements because they've realized it's still meaningless. Mm. Like they, they, they figure out, they believe so much and they, they, they do their best to get to what they think is the truth of things. Obviously they cannot because their whole, whole outlook is skewed, but they do make intellectual progress in, in various ways, great scientists. And they, they still, they're still just as unhappy as the person who, you know, spent his whole life trying to get a Ferrari and then got a Ferrari and realized, oh, okay, it's just, just a Ferrari. It's not, it was, it was Matt more. Damon, I think, who said it really nicely about his Oscar. Do you, I remember you told me about this. Yeah, movie. yeah. He said, he said, he got his Oscar, he was like 19 for uh, Goodwill Hunting. And he said, thank God I didn't, I think he was, uh, he, I think he put it in his toilet or something. And he said, you know, uh, he's looking at it and he said later to his mum, thank God I didn't spend my whole my life chasing this because... It's just a prize, you know, the high of the winning it goes down, you get off stage, you go to the after party, you come home, you got the prize, and then the next day you carry on living your life. Yeah. You know, the effect of these things wane. Yeah. Um, so whoever you are in society, it doesn't matter because we've all been created by God and our purpose is actually all the same. Yeah. And if you've been blessed with intellect, then don't make that blessing into a trial for yourself and mm. distract yourself, but use it for the sake of of God's creation and use it to advance your relationship or to, to understand God better so that you can advance your relationship with him. Yeah. I mean, this is the problem. I mean, for, especially for intellectual people, they find it much harder sometimes to f come to God because it becomes an idol for them. They, their own intellect. Their own intellect becomes yeah. an idol for them. And they, they can't get, because all around them, they see that they are superior to others. Yeah. Yeah. They find it <laughs> impossible to recognize the fact that their superiority over others is like a person who has three pennies compared to one who has one penny. <laughs> Look yeah. before a king who has an infinite treasure. Yeah. You know, you don't go to the king with who has infinite treasure and start boasting of the fact that you have three <laughs> pennies and, and your mate's got one. Yeah, yeah. Because you look like a moron, <laughs> right? Because, you know, it's a meaningless thing to even talk about. Yeah, yeah. But, but this is, people are so wrapped up in their comparison with other human beings, they forget that we're all equal before God. You yeah. know, your intellect compared to somebody else is, is like the intellect of a fly compared to that of an ant. Yeah. <laughs> to a human. Yeah. A, a greater difference. Yeah. So it's actually born out of a failure to recognize the tr the true reality of God. And, and, and if you reflect, this is one of the blessings of science and, and modern advancement, that if you really reflect and do a little bit of learning about 
how intricate basic things in the universe are, mm. you know, how complex, simple organism structures are. Well, you you're an ITU doctor. I mean, you must have learned tons of this for physiology. Yeah, of course. And, you know, you did a medical degree as well. So, I mean, uh, but you, don't need to be a, uh, you don't need to be a medic. You don't yeah. need to have studied a degree in human physiology yeah. to be able to look up the fact that this little fly that's flying around in my face is actually extraordinarily complex. <laughs> and quite annoying. <laughs> and quite annoying. Drosophilia. Drosophilia. <laughs> um, <laughs> the basis of like all of human biology. <laughs> Biological advancements, philosophy. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you don't have to be some great intellectual who's done degrees in this. Mm. You know, it is so complex, um, biological organisms, that when you then really try and perceive how complex and how advanced and how beyond of beyond that being must have been who created all this, mm. it serves as a fantastic way, a guidepost. But it doesn't serve as a guidepost for Stephen Fry for some reason. Mm. Maybe we'll give it another 10 years and he'll have evolved a bit further and he'll start oh, to Oh, maybe he'll join us in the, in the studio, God willing. Yeah, I mean, Stephen Fry, you are most welcome to join <laughs> us in the studio. We'd love to have you. We have another camera. We can put you right there. and We can, we can get, even get a chair. We can even get a chair for you. <laughs> I'm sure we can get that in the budget. Yeah. No, we, we, we've, got, we've got chairs over there. We've got it all sorted. Just come over. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, and, and there's something else which strikes me, which I think is a, a problem of intellectual people, is that I think when they when they see the people rushing to prayer, they think they're quite simple. And some of them may well be quite simple people, <laughs> but actually they've gone further than the great intellectuals if they recognize God. Yeah. Because they recognize that actually the truth is fairly simple. Yeah, obviously we haven't been created for no purpose. Yeah. Obviously there's a reason we're here. And yeah, probably all the religions of all the major cultures, you know, they're probably roughly right. And you know, <laughs> I'm actually going to, you know, devote myself to this, even if it's just hedging my bets yeah you know rather than devote myself to memorizing qi or something but of course nobody's actually provided that answer to stephen fry no yeah no no one except for everyone, of course no one everyone in history essentially yeah every single human yeah exactly i mean he's a, he's a person of immense intellect and you know from a kind of academic standpoint and a person of immense historical knowledge undoubtedly yeah you know that he should know better than anybody else yeah um what the lessons of history are and what the different cultures of history teach us um there's a beautiful Quranic verse which ties this question of purpose together with the question of suffering, mm. uh, which is, you know, pretty much the only argument atheists actually have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I was wondering no, no, if you could go for it. You sure? Okay, so the Quranic verse, chapter 2, verse 156 to 157, it states, And we will try you with something of fear and hunger. So this is God speaking to humans. Mm. And we will try you with something of fear and hunger and loss of wealth and lives and fruits of labor. Mm. But give glad tidings to those who patiently persevere, who, when a misfortune overtakes them, say, surely to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. So how does this tie into the question of purpose and, and what's its role? Well, because I think if you think about, you know, the the opening line of that about we, we will try with something of, was it fruits and, and we will try with something of fear and hunger so fear of losing things, hunger of not actually having those things, and the loss of wealth, the provision that you have. To get things. Yeah, lives, so the lives of those that you love, and also your faculty of life and your health, and the fruits of your labor. Mm. That all these things which Stephen Fry has been talking about, that these are things which people try and get, and they realize that they're nothing, ultimately. These are the things that ultimately also are things that are taken away from you. Inevitably, whoever you are in this world, mm. you're going to have trials, you're going to have suffering, you're going to have difficulties. You're not, no one is immune to this. 
you know, even just aging, you're going to have the problems of aging, you have your parents aging and dying, and you're going to have relationships that break down and you're going to have, you know, wealth that, that, that fades away. No one is immune to this. And God is saying that we will try you no matter who you are, you will be tried via these things, which you take as your God, <coughs> but give glad tidings to those who are patient, to those who are steadfast. And these are those who, when a misfortune overtakes them, they say, in the lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajun. This is what Muslims say when someone dies. And it means, surely to God do we belong and to him shall we return. And the reason why we have been instructed to say this is because when we lose something and when we suffer, it reminds us that that thing is not eternal. That thing was always transient. And to have, we should never put ourselves fully in that transient thing. Hmm. Rather, that thing was also came from God and was the creation of God. And God is the one who is eternal. Hmm. So it's a reminder that don't put yourself in these temporary things. And that we shall return to God. Yeah, don't. Yeah, absolutely. We shall return. We to are God one of those well. things. Absolutely. That's going to go as well. Well, we have come from God. Yeah. And we are going to go back to God. And everything in our life has come from God and goes back to God. Hmm. So we're going to come here. Things are going to come into our lives. They go back to God. They're going to return. And then we're going to go back. So ultimately. And we will be one of those trials for somebody else who loves us. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. And ultimately, the prayer that we're taught to, you know, uh, to say reminds us of that, that we should only attach ourselves truly in our heart of hearts to God, because he is the only one that will actually be there forever. That is the only eternal source of stability and joy mm. is your relationship with God. Mm. Um, so, you know, what Stephen Fry was talking about kind of is he's experienced this. Yeah. He's experienced this. Yeah. But the, the step which he hasn't taken, it seems, is that he hasn't said, okay, well, all of this stuff isn't actually he has said all of this stuff isn't my purpose but he hasn't recognized that this should also this should then take you to that which is eternal yeah the great beautiful beyond yeah he knows what it is i think he knows what it is because he can't not because he's intellectually too smart not to know what the no, answer he, is no, but no, he's he, in denial about it so he no, doesn't no, no, he's recognize smart, it. he's smart enough to can to, to hide it from his from himself yeah well everyone knows like you said that it's the quran is a, a vicar it's we know in our heart of hearts even if you haven't got any degrees in your or deaf and dumb, you probably you probably recognise something there. Yeah.